You're listening to the Bill Kelly Podcast. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome once again to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions for critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Good to have you with us today. Uh, as we touch on a very, very important topic, it's, it's something that just about every elected official in this country and many other countries are dealing with right now, and that is, uh, well, shelter, homelessness. Uh, we've talked about the tent encampments. We've talked about the social and economic implications of that. Uh, basic question here is how do you get a roof over everybody's head in this country? This is something that I never, and I, I'm sure many other people in this country, never thought we'd be talking about. God, this is Canada. That sort of thing doesn't happen here. The third world countries, maybe, but it's happening. And uh, a lot of people are just scratching their heads right now and wondering what the hell are we going to do about this? Well, uh, our next guests have uh, some solutions, uh, but you can't find solutions, of course, until you identify the scopes of, uh, of the problem that we're going to be dealing with here. Uh, the Hamilton Community Foundation has uh, been heavily involved, of course, in the Hamilton community, uh, touching on a number of socioeconomic issues, and they're tackling, tackling rather this issue of homelessness right now. Where they've come up with a report called Vital Signs Affordable Housing, and it brings together a range of data into uh, this report, providing a snapshot of the state of affordable housing here in the Hamilton area. Joining us to talk about this, uh, Terry Cook, who is the president and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation, and Steve Pomeroy, one of the authors of the report that we're going to be talking about. Gentlemen, thank you so much for the time today. I'm glad you could join us. Good to be here. Glad to be here. Terry, as I mentioned, the Community Foundation has been doing a lot of work over the number of years of vital signs and talking about what's going on when it comes to health care and socioeconomic issues. Uh, you, like I, are a recovering politician. We both served on, on municipal councils uh, in the Hamilton area for a number of years. I, in I all of your days. I some responsibility for some of your political career, Bill, but that, that's... <laughs> it it was. It was. We are inexplicably <laughs> tied in so many yeah. different ways. Did you ever think, though, that this community and other communities like, like Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa would be facing this kind of a crisis? And it is indeed a crisis. Well, uh, I hate to say it, but the chickens come home to roost and, uh, you know, ancient history for the three of us. But I was the chairman of the regional government in the 90s when the then Paul Martin liberal government uh, got out of the business of providing non-market housing support. Uh, and we were also there when the provincial conservative government of Mike Harris downloaded the responsibility onto municipal governments. And in fact, that was one of those watershed moments for me politically, because I, as a longtime red Tory, asked this community to vote for anybody but that government, because what they were doing was, in my opinion, deeply damaging to the welfare of people in, in Hamilton. And uh, it's no surprise or accident that, you know, 25 years later, uh, the absence of senior levels of government in providing direct support to non-market housing has, you know, partially contributed to the crisis that we are now facing. So I think it's important to understand some of that history um, as we then wrestle with where do we go from here and how do we get all levels of government and the private sector and the community engaged in really taking a comprehensive approach to dealing with this crisis. And there is a political element to this. I know some people want to t tend to shy away from that, but uh, political policy has shaped where we are. As a matter of fact, I can recall, as I was reading the report uh, yesterday, Terry, uh, 1999, uh, you and I attended uh, a Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference in Halifax. 
Uh, and that's where politicians of all political stripes, of course, municipal politicians get together and uh, talk with federal representatives. And the, the, the whole theme of that, that whole convention in Halifax was housing. Uh, the government had backed off. We uh, were talking about a potential crisis here in Hamilton, about affordability. And we talked about benchmarks. And I know, Steve, this is one of the things that I guess we've always kind of used as a foundation for this discussion. How much of your income, if in fact you have income, are you actually spending on, on, on accommodation for to put a roof over your head, whether it's rental or whether it's, it's in a mortgage payment, etc. Uh, and that number has, has become drastically higher than it should right now, which basically is putting people out on the street. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the standard benchmark has, has been adopted. It's, it, you know, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary. Thirty percent of income, and you know, you know, if you look historically where we've come from, it used to be twenty percent back in the post early post war period. It got to twenty five and kind of bumped to thirty. So that's kind of now accepted as a rule of thumb, um, and we're sort of seeing folks paying you know upwards of forty, fifty percent in in many cases, uh, both in terms of you know, look more, more acutely, of course amongst low-income folks, uh, but also, and now the middle-income folks, I mean, some of the, the bank economist reports that have come out recently have noted the fact that, you know, the, uh, and the, the um, Hab Habitat for Humanity report, I guess, that came out a few weeks ago saying they used to target, you know, re re very low-income working poor folks, and now it's folks that have decent jobs and earning 100000 a year are now clients of Habitat for Humanity, so the bar really has gone up. Just on a point of, of clarification, though, I mean, Terry, accused the Martin Liberals of ending the social housing in, 19, in the early 1990s. It was actually the final budget of the Mulroney government in 1993. What's it? I stand corrected. <laughs> but either you way, know, I'm a um, politician, I, I never let the facts get in the way of telling good stories, Steve. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, but where we seem to get bogged down, though, gentlemen, in this discussion is, you know, we, we can look back and say, okay, aha, that's when it started. Uh, right. This is, this is, as you said, a slow-growing process and sometimes moving at glacial speed. Uh, but there can be, in economics, as, as we all know, uh, things that can just accelerate that process. And the pandemic certainly was part of that. It didn't cause this, but it certainly was a major factor in us being where we are right now, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what we've had happen, as, as Terry says, you know, it has been a long time brewing. But, of course, you know, the, the government withdrawal from funding uh, social and affordable housing programs, that's, you know, four or five percent of our stock. Ninety five percent of our stock gets built by the market. And so mm -hmm. what we're seeing is the, the a whole bunch of trends on the market side where the market actually isn't responding effectively to uh, to demand. Uh, and we've certainly seen, um, you know, one of the key factors, you know, as, much, as much as a lot of politicians now are saying we've got a chronic undersupply problem, uh, what we had actually before that really started uh, was a very, very, a period of very steady decline in, in interest rates, uh, which, which basically, you know, prices don't go up in a vacuum. They go up because consumers drive them up. And those, those declining interest rates at a period of pretty strong economic growth in the early sort of decade of the, this millennium and into the, the next decade, uh, gave people capacity to pay. So it, it, it's that capacity to pay that was driving up prices. And then on top of that, population growth and particularly significant increases in immigration. So you've got more people with more money. That basically puts upward pressure on price and results in, um, in the uh, prices going up. Uh, so it really is a combination of de those demand factors uh, have been a, a big contributor and then, of course, as economists would say, housing markets are supply and elastic. People can jump on a plane today and arrive tonight. We can't put a house on a production line today and have it ready for tomorrow. So it's that lagged effect, the short-term effect of that. We actually get very significant pressures on both the ownership market and the rental market. 
Um, and of course, the collateral damage of that is the folks at the bottom end of the market. Let's talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, Terry, I mean, you can't just point to one issue here. There's so many uh, extraneous factors here, the pandemic being one. But and Steve just talked about interest rates. Uh, you know, we remember those days, of course, and housing prices seemed to double almost overnight. Uh, and we were warned by economists time and time again, uh, don't overspend because it's not going to stay this way forever. Uh, I don't think we listen to that. And a lot of us, of course, are so deeply in debt right now. But as long as the mortgage rate was 1.2%, you figure, okay, it's, I can get by. Well, they've gone up considerably right now. And, of course, everybody wants to look at the Bank of Canada and say, you're the bad guys here. Uh, but there's a little culpability here with us, too, isn't it, that maybe we just didn't see the signs coming? Well, yeah. I mean, those of us of a certain generation who have had the, frankly, um, unbelievable return on our principal residence, uh, you know, I'm not sure we're complicit, but we are a big part of the issue here that's going to make it much tougher for our kids to ever afford anything that resembles what we've had the good fortune to live in. And cheap money has also contributed to the number of people that have have entered the market as investors and speculators as opposed to owners and occupants. So that's a big part of it. I want to point out one other thing, though, Bill, um, because so far we've let the municipal folks pretty much off the hook, but I, I found it telling in today's spectator which i still read and i would encourage people to read because as you know local journal journalism is suffering and we need the mm -hmm. accountability that comes with what you do and what good journalists at the spec and other local mediums provide but there was a big feature on this vital science report and almost opposite that there was an article on an affordable housing project proposed for dundas in which of course the local neighborhood were talking about how that would destroy character and and uh, undermine their well-being, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to be blunt, um, particularly in my experience, uh, suburban and affluent communities have been very effective with the support of local elected officials at uh, making it very hard, if not impossible, to site, locate, and build affordable housing projects in low-density neighborhoods. And that's got to change. And And that, too, is part of the equation if we're going to make headway. That's not a, a uniquely Hamilton situation, though, is it, Steve? God knows nope. I saw that nope. during my time on council. As a matter of fact, some of the people I thought were the most egregious offenders of that, some of them are still there. Uh, and, and so I, I get where they're coming from. Uh, it may only take one or two people to, in a situation that Tara just described, a neighbor that maybe even you three or four blocks away that doesn't want to do it, and the ward councillor, is going to figure, well, look, it, I need that vote. I want that lawn sign there the next election. So they play along. And these things got bogged down. And, mm -hmm. and so it was a problem. And it's not just a Hamilton problem. But my concern about that, and I wanted to get your comment on this too, Steve, is did the provincial government overreact to that? Uh, there was a process that certainly was flawed and needed to, to, be, to be rebooted. Uh, but to essentially take an awful lot of the planning process away from municipalities and take a lot of the oversights, uh, such as uh, you know places where you can appeal decisions, uh, conservation authorities, all of these people that had input into that have essentially been blunted by this government. And I don't know that it's made it a better situation. I, I think this is a ubiquitous problem. I think we have to really look at the planning system writ large. I mean, you know, you've got two things going on. What we call planning is actually development and control. It's an approvals process. Someone applies to get someone built, something built, and there's a whole bunch of steps and hoops you have to jump through to get there. Planning should be actually doing good planning and setting up along arterials in areas where you want increased density and have it having an open public consultative process 
about how do we want this community to evolve and how are we going to plan it and how, where are we going to allow density? Have those conversations at the planning stage. Don't wait until somebody comes along on a particular site and say, I want, I want to change the zoning on this. If council's already adopted an official plan, which says we're going to have intensification along transit corridors and around stations, that's a public policy document that's established that principle. And, and, and you mm -hmm. should consult on that principle when you adopt the official plan. Uh, but then to basically, you know, a developer that comes along and tries to follow the plan and the community says, well, hang on, we don't like this. Well, you know, th they should have had that conversation back when they were doing the original planning. I think that's where our planning system is failing us. And, and you know, politicians at the federal level and the provincial level are pointing fingers at municipalities. Municipalities only do what the provincial enabling legislation lets them do. You guys know that as former politicians. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the province is culpable on this and they really have to think about you know, how does the planning system work and can we plan in a way that accelerates the actual site development downstream by, by getting the approvals and then the principles of planning and what's acceptable to the community up front. Uh, Terry, you mentioned off the top, and, and Steve, I think, to underscore, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the point that an awful lot of the housing that has been built and will be built hopefully in the future is, is coming from the private sector, uh, mm -hmm. developers, who, as we have all noticed and observed, I guess, over the last couple of months, especially here in Ontario, uh, developers have been painted by so many people here as the bad guys. They're money hungry. They don't give a damn about community, they, and they, they'll they'll break the rules. And, uh, and in my experience, yes, there are some people that are like that in that industry. In every industry, there are some people that like to mm -hmm. skirt the uh, the issues of of of, of good taste and, and and the boundaries that are there. Uh, but most of the people I know are not like that. They do want to play by the rules. They do want to see mm -hmm. a, a smooth process uh, with some give and take in it right now. Uh, but but. Frankly, they're pretty pissed off right now at the government, at municipal governments, at provincial governments. Uh, how do you bring them back to the table and say, okay, guys, you have to be part of the solution here? Yeah, really good point, Bill. I don't have a simple answer to that because, unfortunately, the whole Greenbelt scandal has just painted a very dark cloud over the entire development industry. And, and you know, in, in specific cases, that's with good reason. <laughs> You know, the, mm -hmm. the provincial government folded on that because of the backlash in the sense that this was just unpalatable, the, the stuff that had gone on. But you're right. We, we can't paint the entire industry and all of the individuals who do really good things and try to, you know, create livable communities that add to to uh, what we're trying to do here uh, with the, with the same brush. And you know, we've been part of uh, affordable home ownership projects in Hamilton and, and Stony Creek with uh, reputable private sector builders who very much have a social conscience and want to build mixed income communities. And I think we have to celebrate those. We have to make it easier for the folks who are doing the kind of stuff that, as Steve has said, we really want to achieve higher density and transit corridors, for instance. And And we also have to accept that you know, the the painful pace of the bureaucracy and the roadblocks put up are, are real for folks who are <laughs> concerned about the time value of money and trying to get projects to a conclusion on budget and on time. And, and so, you know, I think all of us would do well not to stereotype every developer and builder as somehow the evil incarnate. If, if they are going to continue to provide most of the housing starts in this province, in this country, we better figure out a way to get them into the process and aligned with what it is we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Steve, it's not as if there isn't... Oh, go ahead. Jump in. 
I mean, it's, it's, as you say, Terry, it's the builders, you know, we can do all the planning you want. It's the implementation of the plan that's important. And it's the developers that do that implementation. And, and they are really a critical part in the cog in the wheel of getting that kind of stuff done. And I think mm -hmm. we do have to sort of figure out how to, you know, so Terry says, streamline the system. Money is, time is money, they keep on telling us. And we do have, I mean, it seems like most levels of government, they're very good at creating new regulations. They're not very good at going backwards and saying, hang on a minute, we've got a whole pile of things that don't actually make any sense. Let, let's you know, clean the cupboard a little bit before we actually bring in these new regs and try to really streamline the process. And I think that you know, the, the attempts that the federal government is trying to make through the Housing Accelerator Fund and provide incentives to municipalities that you know, will give you some extra grant money if you, if you do these kind of things is nudging them in that direction. And hopefully that's the kind of outcomes this particular initiative will, will, will generate. Do you get the sense, though, Gentlemen, that uh, that the industry is ready to to be malleable and 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 you know compromise in situations like this. Steve, you touched on, you know, uh, the types of housing that are available. Uh, you know, let's face it, a lot of the developers all want to be single family residential, I guess, because there's a better return on investment for them. But that's not what everybody wants, and that's not what every community needs. Uh, there has to be that mix. Are they for both of you, if you could? Uh, it, do they get it? Are they on side with that with that philosophy and that theory going forward? I mean, it, it, like you said, I mean, there's a, there's a mixed bag of developers. They're not homogenous. You know, they're they're mm -hmm. you know, a different range of them. My own personal experience, I, lived, I was living in an area that uh, was zoned for semi-detached in, in, in a single-family home, and I wanted to basically rebuild on my own lot, and, and I wanted to downsize, and I wanted a smaller unit on one side and, and just a regular unit on the other. The build, a couple of builders that I talked to about basically doing a subdivision, and they could build, on, build both sides, and they could, they could then sell the other side and make their money and, uh, and just pay me for the land. Um, they pushed back and they said, well, you're leaving money on the table by only building 1,800 square feet. Uh, you, you don't want a garage. You only want a carport. Everybody wants a garage. So that, you know, they're, they're, they're absolutely fixated on one product that they know how to build, the 3,000 square foot house. And, mm -hmm. and they really were intransigent, even though I was the, the client and saying, this is what I want and this is what I'm willing to pay for. I just gave up talking to them. And I think that it that does reflect a bit of an attitude in the, in the industry uh, that they are very comfortable building that kind of product. And then, of course, we go to the other extreme of the very high density uh, development. And it's that, you know, what everyone talks about, that missing middle piece. And I think certainly in a, in a city like Hamilton, uh, you know, 30, 60 story towers are fine downtown Toronto. Hamilton's not a 30, 60 story town. And I think that sort of mid-rise six, eight stories along your arterials is a built form that actually makes a whole lot more sense in that kind of a city. If we're concerned about affordability, it's 15%, 15 to 20% cheaper to build wood frame than it is to build masonry. So if you stay six stories, you can basically build housing at significantly lower cost. And it's surprising that the industry isn't actually coming to the party and recognizing that there's a whole lot of folks there that want to own and they can do because of the price point. And what, what can we do to bring that price point down? Terry, your thoughts on that? Well, I, 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 I agree with Steve. This is not a monolithic industry. If you look at the complicated infill stuff that is happening in this community, it tends to be one or two developers who are early adopters, who have a different risk tolerance than the folks who traditionally builds, you know, suburban, uh, large lot, uh, single family homes. Um, and what we've got to do is figure out a way to incent those and others who might be so inclined to start taking on the harder stuff. But let me add one other dimension here. Uh, and it, 
and it actually was highlighted in a report that Brian Doucette, professor from Waterloo, did for us on the LRT corridor in Hamilton, which is obviously primed for a complete reimagining in the next decade or so. And that is the Delta High School site, which is a prominent six-acre yep. historic high school. Uh, the school board uh, uh, passed on uh, making it available to uh, a nonprofit builders. The city passed as well. They they could have had it at the appraised value of about $4.7, $4.8 million. Uh, we backstopped, the community foundation backstopped an offer on the land for the appraised value uh, that allowed Indwell to propose a mixed income uh, both private and social housing site, that bid was tripled by the private sector condo offer. So we bid 4.7, the appraised pre-market value, and the private sector bid 15. If we don't figure out a way to protect lands that are presently held uh, by the institutions or by faith communities or others that are concerned about this issue, we will continue to see lots of high-priced condos built on these sites, and we will continue uh, to, in fact, dislocate people who are at the margins. And and that is a very telling example of a missed opportunity, in my opinion. So it's not just the and, – and you can't blame the private sector for bidding what they think they can get a decent return on on a, on a good housing site. Uh, but the public entities involved – I think have to do a better job at protecting those rare opportunities to to designate and preserve land for mixed income communities and particularly for non-market housing. But isn't well, that, that a, this is a, a, a an ongoing problem, isn't it, Steve? I mean, I, I can recall years and years ago when I was on council, I mean, it seemed as if one of the main concerns then uh, was people that owned apartment buildings, multi-residential buildings, uh, wanted to convert them to condos, uh, mm-hmm. which meant we were losing an awful lot of, of rental stock, of course. And I, I get the profit. I'm not against profit. I, I understand that. You know, you want to get a return on your investment. But we have to have guardrails. And more importantly, you have to uh, you have to police these guardrails, don't you? And that seemed to be something that a lot of municipal governments just were, were delinquent in. Well, I think there, I mean, you know, the, the, the example that Terry's uh, giving us, and, and indeed the Greenbelt uh, debacle uh, uh, demonstrated, you know, with the EU, a, Land has no inherent value until a, a, a government of some kind, usually a municipality, approves a use on it. And when you change that use, you massively change the potential value of that land. There's a massive windfall gain, the $8.2 billion windfall gain that developers in the Greenbelt were going to gain. And the site that Terry's talking about, they're tripling the value because they basically look at what's the potential to build at a high-end, high, high uh, higher-density and then they work backwards from there. They subtract their development costs, they subtract their profit, and that's what they're willing to pay for the land. If the municipality in the planning process said, said we, we, we want to encourage intensification in this area, but a third of the units are going to have to be at a price below this benchmark or, or have rents that are reasonably affordable, the potential profit that the developer could then gain from that land development would diminish. And then when he does his math, his land valuation would actually be much less and he would pay less for it. But it's, it's, it, that only works... If the municipality plants the goalposts firmly in the ground up front and said, here are the, the, the preceding conditions of an increase in density, you have to produce the, and the in, in the British system, they call that planning gain, uh, the, you know, the, up, the value, land value uplift that's created by a public decision. And in cases where you've got transit systems, you've got two public decisions, a massive expenditure decision and a planning decision to increase density that creates a massive windfall gain for the owners of land around that station. 
And if the policy can say, yes, we want, we want to encourage density, but with these conditions, uh, and, and, and you know, the market will, will accept that because the, the market, what they don't like is uncertainty. The protracted negotiations that go on, whether it's a Section 37 agreement or some other deal, um, planners are not very good at negotiating with developers to start off with. Um, so instead of setting up a negotiated process, just basically have very, very firm policies. This is what we, we require. Take it or leave it. And the developers will figure out how to make it work. And I think that's the kind of direction we have to take our planning system in. Uh, Terry, I want to reference a couple of the things that, uh, that are being highlighted in the report that, uh, that you've released here, uh, Vital Signs Affordable Housing. Uh, and one of them is existing stock. And uh, you know, the good news is, as, as you point out in the, in the report here, uh, new home construction is actually increasing. Uh, but the bad news is a lot of the existing units are, are, are being delinquent and, and are basically unusable. I mean, we can both, all three of us, I guess, really, uh, look to points and sections of the city right now where there are essentially houses that have been abandoned uh, because they're uninhabitable right now. So we, we seem to be losing at this end. And, and so not only are we trying to build new, but we're trying to play catch up at the same time. Yeah, I, I think the most staggering part of the report that, Steve and Jeff Wingard put together is the for every new affordable unit we're creating we're losing we've lost 23 uh, mostly to the REITs uh, mostly because of speculation in the real estate market especially around uh, rapid transit corridors where they know there's going to be value uplift and you know it, it's um, futile to be spending all our time and energy focused on can we build more new uh, to, to meet that portion of the, the community's need, while at the same time there's a huge hole in the bottom of the bucket. Uh, one of the things we've been part of is a discussion with the federal government about an acquisition fund to retain low end of market units. And in fact, in Hamilton, uh, the Community Foundation was part of a consortium that actually bought a couple of small mom and pop walk-ups with the intention of transitioning ownership from the private sector into the charitable sector to try and mitigate against future uh, rent increases, but we would need the participation of all levels of government if we're going to scale that and protect more of the stock that's being lost. And that, I think, is a very critical issue. Let's talk about affordability. And 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 again, you know, Steve, you referenced about you know the argument for you know incursions into the green belt. Well, we need to build houses. Well, they're not going to build uh, geared to income housing, etc. In some of these lots, I mean, they were talking about you know servicing a specific uh, high income group. That we're going to do this, which is not really addressing the problem at all. But how do you address it, especially in, in within the city limits and in the downtown core? Where I know you've done an awful lot of research on this. Uh, you, you referenced, to, for instance, the social assistance programs that are available to to people who need them, uh, whether it's ODSP or any number of other things. If if somebody is actually getting two or three of those programs, they still don't have enough money to even pay the rent for one month. Uh, what do we do about a situation like that? Government has to have a, an understanding, but also has to be part of that solution, don't they? Yeah, I mean, you know, Terry referenced the, uh, you know, the very long time frame of this problem emerging. And basically, we have social assistance benefit rates uh, across the country, and in this province in particular, that are stuck at their 1970s levels. The, you know, the shelter component mm -hmm. of welfare, which is the portion of your welfare total income assistance benefit, um, you know, $195 for a single person. You can't find a hole in the ground for $195. Um, so I think you know, the affordability problem for low-income folks is predominantly an income problem, a lack of income problem. 
And until yeah. we actually look at our income policies and either increase the, the, uh, the, the shelter rates of income assistance or augment it with housing benefit type assistance to help folks pay. If we're trying to help folks escape from homeless shelters, for example, uh, where under ODSP they can get $489 a month to pay their rent, again, you can't find anywhere to live. So if we want to end homelessness, we have to create the financial capacity for folks to pay the $900 or $1,000 a month that it's going to cost for them to find a bachelor unit uh, in, in the area. So you know, bu- just building new isn't going to get, that, get us there. Now, in, in some cases, those folks that are trying to exit homelessness, if they are chronically homeless and they have issues of, of um, uh, substance abuse and mental health challenges, they certainly need significant wraparound support. And in those cases, the permanent supportive housing, the kind of stuff that Indwell builds is critically important. But for many of those folks, their problem is only a lack of income. We don't need to build them a new house. Uh, we need to give them the income to afford a house that's there. Um, and then, of course, uh, people would argue, well, if we just do that, we're going to create more inflation in the rental market. We're going to put money in the pockets of landlords. Well, I don't think we should penalize low income people uh, on, on the, you know, the basis that we think that the landlords are going to be pocketing the benefit. As long as we can, could, you know, at the same time, expand our supply get vacancy rates up and moderate the increases, we'll manage the inflationary issue. Uh, but we need to give people capacity to pay. Well, yeah. Terry, I mean, that's when you started butting heads with the Harris government way back when uh, when they did their who does what, uh, and, and which you were a, 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 somebody who offered some input into this. Uh, and uh, I, I, I still, still think have probably got a chip on the show. show for that experience, but. Exactly, exactly. Right, uh, and to do, as, as Steve mentioned, the social assistance rates. Uh, the the wind government started w- working on a pilot project uh, for for a living wage and a fair wage policy, uh, and and we talked to some of the people that were participating in that particular mm-hmm. study. And in the months that it was in play, it made the mark market difference here. People were be, mm-hmm. being able to go back to school; they were being able to pay the rent. Uh, it was a living wage, so, and and it, of course the Harris or the Ford government came along and simply said, "No, it's not going to work. There's no data for it. There was data for it. They just didn't care to watch it." Mm-hmm. Uh, how what's give us a solution let's let's talk okay. a little bit about that because steve's point is well taken you can build all the units you want but if the rent's still going to be nineteen hundred dollars a month uh you're, you're pretty limited as to who's actually going to be able to walk through the door is yeah. is it geared to income is it is it tied to inflation how do, how do you handle something like that terry start with you yeah it, well let me speak from a kind of selfish community foundation standpoint because we've in this community for the last 10 or 15 years, been the by far the biggest investor lender into the non-market housing sector other than government, right? And what's clear to us and what's clear to the local coalition of charitable housing providers is that, in fact, we have to do a better job at getting uh, supportive housing units uh, shovel-ready. And, and so, in fact, We've just announced that on top of the very significant investments we've already made in the sector, that in fact we're going to commit an additional $50 million over the next five to ten years to, to specifically target the issue around vulnerable people, many of whom have mental health and addictions issues, and many of whom are now living in encampments. And part of the solution to that is, in fact, to get enough of the projects like the ones that Indwell and Sacagawea provide with wraparound supports as well as dignified housing ready to go so that when all levels of government uh, commit, as I expect they will have to, uh, that this community is well positioned. We at present, I think, have 
the, the city's registry and count is about 1,900 people who are living, uh, who are unhoused. And many of those would be serviced by the 400 priority units that uh, the Coalition of Housing Providers are ready to go. But what they don't have is the soft costs at the front end, the unsecured financing to get through planning, environmental approvals, to clean the sites, and, and to truly be shovel ready. And that's where we're going to devote a good portion of both our capital and our attention in the next little while. Uh, we think that's the biggest contribution we can make as a philanthropic uh, contributor to this challenge. Steve, what about that affordability issue? Is, is it government's role exclusively? I mean, what do you see as a possible solution here? Yeah, I mean, you know, markets will respond to effective demand. People with low income don't have effective demand, so you don't get a market response. Ergo, it's a public responsibility. I mean, I think, you know, one of the charts we have in the, in the report is one that shows this very significant decline in core housing need between 2016 and 2021. Core housing needs a concept that Steve she uses to measure people who have housing challenges, affordability, condition, and, and crowding. Um, but there was a massive decline from 32% to 26%, about 15,000 fewer renters in core housing need in that, in that period. But it was a completely uh, artificial statistical um, improvement solely because of the fact that in 2021, it was capturing income from 2020 when you had a lot of people who had served benefits and all of a sudden their income went up a little bit and their, their affordability improved and therefore the number with affordability problems went down. So it, 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 the point you were making about the, um, the pilot, the, the guaranteed income um, um, benefit pilot, it proves that you know, the CERB was a form of that. It was a very temporary form yeah. of it. Uh, but it, 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 we have never moved the needle on core housing need nationally. I mean, nationally, it was 270,000 um, household reduction in core housing need. So it really does speak to the, the, you know, the significant impact and the very quick impact uh, that uh, having some kind of a housing benefit, a housing allowance to help people pay their, their rent uh, really can have. And I think, you know, the government's the fixation on supply. These guys are going to run out of runway. I mean, they can talk supply until the cow comes home. There isn't a single door that will actually be built during the current election uh, uh, period, period of the government. If they, want to, if they want to get themselves reelected, they need to do things that are going to get people help now. Uh, and uh, providing income assistance is the much quicker way, and it's the only way to actually do that in the short term. Yeah. Is there a political will to do that, Terry? Uh, the political, and maybe even political courage, because there's going to be pushback on that. I mean, even here in Hamilton, they've tried to hold public meetings about some of these issues, and uh, they've canceled them. I mean, some councillors just don't want to face the music here, uh, but that's part of the job. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to make some tough decisions and, and probably piss some people off just to move the yardsticks to where we, we need to move them. I like that language. I used to always say when I was the chairman of the regional government, if at the end of every day I hadn't pissed somebody off, I probably wasn't doing my job. Um, here's why I am somewhat optimistic. Uh, for the first time in my memory, uh, national polling demonstrates that housing has risen to the top of the heap in terms of pressing concerns for all Canadians. Uh, that leads me to believe that irrespective of kind of political or ideological stripe, every serious contender for national or provincial office is going to have to be speaking to and acting on this priority. So, I mean, it, it's sometimes slow to rise to a boil and to capture political attention. But on this one, I think we are at that point. I've been, you know, I've traveled this country extensively 
And there isn't a community I've been in, large, small, rural, urban, where encampments are not a conspicuous part of the urban fabric today. Um, and, and I think all of us have to be disturbed by the fact that some of our neighbors don't have housing and it's growing. And, and again, all you have to do is look south of the border to places like San Francisco or Portland, and you will quickly recognize that if we don't aim for permanent solutions to this problem, uh, we are all going to be uh, in a world of hurt uh, because uh, I don't think anybody as a Canadian feels really good about where we're at right now. And I think we're going to challenge our, our governments at all levels to be actually doing more and, and, and to taking a long-term, comprehensive, urgent approach to this issue. Well, there has to be discussion and there has to be debate, but it has to be informed discussion. And uh, this report, I think, goes a long way towards providing some information for that and a foundation for future uh, discussions. I'm hoping our elected officials read the report and, and, and begin discussing what we can do about this. Uh, it is a, a crisis situation, as you said. And given the fact that you're paying like $19 for a, a stock of celery these days, it seems that way anyway, uh, for housing to be the number one issue, even above inflation now for Canadians, mm-hmm. uh, I think is a call to action. And I hope our elected officials get that. Gentlemen, uh, thank you so much, first of all, for the work that you've done on the report. Uh, Terry, to the Community Foundation for being there for this community uh, to make sure that we know the direction in which we have to go. And uh, I'm hoping that, uh, that this is going to be the catalyst for, for that discussion and hopefully finding some solutions. Thank you both so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, Bill. And before I exit, I, I simply want to say that I am so glad to be with you on this medium. Um, I continue to be alarmed by the lot, loss of, of uh, local journalism, and your voice continues to be a credible, important component of this community's dialogue. So I wish you well, and and uh, I'm really glad to be able to be with you today. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm very, yeah, very, very happy to be able to continue on this platform. Uh, you know, as, as newspapers, radio stations, television stations, uh, lay off newsrooms. Uh, it's it's a it's a frightening circumstance and a frightening situation, uh, which I think at least is partly to blame for the fact that the people don't seem to be informed with the ideas uh, that they have to be discussing in situations like that. So we're going to keep Indeed. fighting the good fight as as you gentlemen do as well. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Cheers. Terry Cook, uh, President and CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. Steve Pomeroy, one of the authors of uh, this report. It's called Vital Signs: Affordable Housing. And uh, that's it for us for today. Uh, Until next time, this is the Bill Kelly Podcast. You have a good day. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. Rebecca Wizens is a 20-time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care and legal practice specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured, or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with the will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wizens, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wizens and Wizens Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care. <laughs>